0: If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. Please give your attention to God's Word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. One of the best books that has ever been written on the theology of the church The Biblical Theology of the Church is a book written back in the 1960s called The Glorious Body of Christ, written by a great theologian by the name of R.B. Kuyper. And let me just read to you the opening paragraph, the very first paragraph on the first page of that book. It says, The Word of God tells us that Christ's church is glorious. Not only does history ascribe to it a past, that is in many respects glorious, and not only does prophecy predict a glorious future, it is essentially glorious. The Christian church is glorious in its very nature. Today, the glory of the church is thickly veiled. It is no exaggeration to assert that in the main, it presents a picture of advanced decadence and extreme feebleness. I read that paragraph again recently and I thought, wow, if R.B. Kuyper could say that about the church in the 1960s, what would he write today? Even though the church is in its essence glorious, that glory is thickly veiled and to the world too often we project decadence and feebleness. Well, we talked, we began to talk last week about what's part of the solution to that problem. We could hire a public relations consultant for the church, try to improve our image. But no, I think really part of the solution, as we talked about last week, is observable repentance. There are many things that the Church of Jesus Christ needs to repent of. I was struck. Do you remember a few years ago, I came out with a whole series of advertisements for Domino's Pizza? Do you remember those ads? It's basically, the the leadership of Domino's came out on these TV ads and said, "Our pizza stinks. It's terrible. We've been listening to our customers, and our customers tell us that the the crust tastes like cardboard and the sauce tastes like ketchup." And I was I remember when those first came out. I was stunned that you have this kind of honesty in advertising. And they said, you know, they, they, they put it out there and said, our pizza is not good. We're going to fix that. We're going to greatly improve our pizza. And then they came out and started selling, really, I have to admit it, much better pizza. I really like Domino's pizza now. It's much better than it used to be. Cheaper, too. And I think the church needs sometimes to do that kind of thing to be able to be up front with the world and say, we've blown it. We have been hypocrites. We have allowed false teaching in our pulpits. We have been worldly. And we have been legalistic. That is part of the solution. We need to publicly repent. Another part of the solution, though, is to understand that we are going to be hated by the world. We looked at that last week. That there is a scandal to the gospel. That Christ is a stumbling stone for most of the world. And a rock of offense. And so we don't want to accommodate to the world. And we need to accept the fact that the world is going to be hostile to us. But the rest of the solution, as we began to look at last week, is to go back to Scripture and remember who we are. To see the church not as the world sees the church, not as the morning newspaper sees the church, not as cable news networks see the church, but to see the church as God sees the church. And how do we do that? We go to Scripture. And in Scripture, there is where we see the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. Last week, we began to look at Peter's lofty language describing the church here in chapter 2. We saw that the church in God's eyes is a great temple, a beautiful, glorious temple made up of living stones built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And In verse 7, remember what we read last week, it says so the honor is for you who believe. It is your honor to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a high honor Peter tells us. And as we move down to verse 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, we see that Paul or Peter uses Highly exalted language, scriptural language to describe the church, to describe who we are in Christ, so that we might understand the honor that we bear as part of the church. So who are we, according to Peter? First of all, he says, we are God's people. We are God's people. Look at verse eight. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of that should be familiar to you if you know your Old Testament. In biblical language, this is the highest status on earth. It's important to realize that Peter here is actually paraphrasing language from Exodus chapter 19. If you think about the book of Exodus, Exodus 19 is one of the most crucial points in the history of the nation of Israel. God had redeemed them. He had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. They had been beaten down, persecuted, suffering, hungry, thirsty slaves under the total domination of Egypt for hundreds of years. And God sent to his people a deliverer, Moses. And Moses led his people out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. And He parted the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies in the Red Sea. And He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And as God's people, this ragtag group of newly freed slaves, surrounded this great mountain, God delivered to them through His mediator, through Moses, He delivered to them His law. And He said to them, that he was going to claim them to be his own. Here's the language from Exodus 19. Be looking at what Peter says here in verses 9 and 10. Let me read to you Exodus 19 and see the similarity of the language. Verses 5 and 6, Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation can you imagine these stiff-necked rebellious dirty weak slaves god was claiming them to be his own his own possession a kingdom of priests and a holy nation do you see how peter is using that same language in describing us the church He he applies every part of that identity given to Israel, the status that Israel had by covenant at Mount Sinai. He applies that same language to us, the church. He says that we are a chosen race. That means we are the chosen family of God. The word, the original word in the Greek there means offspring, kin, family. A group of people that share an ethnicity because of bloodline, because of being connected to a common ancestor. We are God's people, His family. Secondly, we are the nation, skipping to the word nation, a holy nation. Historically, that's what happens to families. Families become clans, clans become tribes, tribes become nations. Typically, that's how most nations come to be, at least historically. And that's how God's people came to be in the Old Testament. Remember the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the covenant that God gave to Abraham that I will make your family a great nation, and through that great nation all nations of the earth will be blessed. You know, we actually in America, our nation was formed not by bloodlines so much. Matter of fact, that's one of the things that makes us somewhat unique among nations in history is the mixture of ethnicities and bloodlines. America was different in the sense that we were formed based on a philosophy, a principle, of freedom, and our nation is held together not by ethnicity but by the Constitution, documents that put forth principles and philosophies of how we should live. What's well, interesting is that God's nation started by ethnicity, by bloodlines from Abraham, but As you see here, even in the book of Genesis, and especially as we move into Exodus, we find that really God's people are based, the formation of God's people, of God's nation, is based upon the covenant. God's promise to make them his people. Peter goes on to point out, just as Moses did, that these would be a nation of priests, or as Peter puts it, a royal priesthood. And in the Old Testament, even though you had a part of Israel that was a priesthood, all of Israel was to be a priest in a general sense, in the sense that they had direct access to their God and that they were to be, they were to represent God to the world. They were to be a light on a hill. They were to be a blessing to all nations. So do you hear what Peter is saying to the church? He is saying to the church, You are the new covenant, the New Testament, Israel. And everything that God said to Israel under the old covenant is true for the church. We are the heirs of the promises given to Abraham, given to Moses, given to David. We are the heirs of all those promises. Paul made that clear. That's one of the major points of the book of Galatians. Let me read to you what Paul says in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith, just as we are. He goes on to say, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so, again, it's the covenant that is really the basis of God's nation, God's people. Belief, our faith in God's promise is what unites us to our God. That's what united Abraham to God. It wasn't his bloodlines, his physical bloodlines. It was his faith in the covenant that God gave to him the promises that God gave to him that united him to his God. It goes on, Paul goes on at the end of chapter 3 to say this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. You, you are Abraham's offspring. You are the heirs of the covenant promise. I hope you don't take that lightly. That's an incredibly glorious thing to say about us, the church. We are the heir of all of the covenant promises. They belong to us. They don't belong to some political entity in the Middle East. Those promises belong to us. I've been reading the Old Testament prophets for months now as I'm working my way through Scripture. And what a joy it is. Every time I read those promises, I'm so glad that those promises given through the prophets are for me. For the church. Not for some future ethnic people. Some other nation. They're for us. They belong to us. And so we are God's people. His nation. A royal priesthood. But secondly, Peter goes on to say, we are God's precious possession. We are God's precious possession. I'm taking this from the phrase there the very middle of these two verses where it says, we are a people for His own possession. Literally, the Greek word there is we are a purchased thing. We are an acquisition of God. That's what it's saying, literally. We are God's acquisition. We are God's purchased thing. It's what he's alluding to in verse 10 where he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It's that transaction he's alluding to. How did we go from not being God's people to being God's people? We were purchased, we were acquired, we were an acquisition by a payment of a price. What Peter is alluding to here in this passage is the biblical concept of redemption. Redemption means to buy back something at great cost. To deliver either a thing or a person by the payment of a price. It wasn't a religious word in the first century when Peter and Paul and John and the writers of the New Testament used the word redemption. We think of it as church language. But in the first century, it was business language, it was social language, it was part of the culture. Slavery was a big part of the culture. And redemption was the hope of the slave. The hope that one day they might be bought back that they might be delivered, they might be freed from captivity or slavery. Prisoners and slaves hoped for redemption. And what the Scripture writers, when they take that word and they apply it to the church, what they're saying is, we belong to God by creation. We are stamped with His image. But by our sin, we sold ourselves into slavery. We became slaves to sin, slaves to the darkness, and we became worthless, bound for destruction. Hopelessly lost. The only way for us to to be delivered from that kind of captivity, that kind of slavery, that kind of eternal destruction, the only way to be delivered was to be bought back. The process of redemption required the payment of a ransom. A ransom is a price that's determined in order to bring about freedom. That's what Peter says. Remember that word from back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The church was bought back. The church was redeemed by the precious blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He was the Lamb of God that laid down His life for us. There's only one price that can be paid to redeem sinners made in the image of God. Only one price. The wages of sin is death. And so a perfect Lamb must be sacrificed. And only the perfect Son of God could pay the price for our sins. Only He could die a death that could pay for our sins. That's why Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he told the Ephesian elders that they were to care for the church of God. This phrase just puts shivers down my spine when I think of being an elder in the church. He tells the elders of the church to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You are... Christ's precious possession. He bought you back with His own perfect blood. And I, as an elder, am given the awesome responsibility of caring for Christ's redeemed church. Now, we do look at ourselves and we don't see much glory. We still see an awful lot of sin. And that's where the good news of redemption is, is because Jesus Christ bought us with His own blood as is. He bought us while we were still slaves, while we were still dead in our sins. But He bought us with the intent to restore us to the original design and beauty. In my former church, we bought a colonial farm. And the centerpiece of the project was to take a barn that had fallen into great disrepair and renovate it into a brand new worship center, a church where we could minister and worship and fellowship in the name of Christ. As I was getting things together for the dedication service, I came across a letter when we first bought the property, a letter that was written by a barn consultant that we had brought in to tell us whether it was possible to save the barn or not. This is a guy who had studied hundreds of barns. He was known nationally as an expert on ancient barns, old barns. And this is what he wrote to us. He said, this is in his letter directly, when it was built, the barn was a masterpiece. Unfortunately, through the years, it's been allowed to deteriorate. As a barn consultant, it is my first responsibility to save every barn possible. In over 400 barns I have inspected, I have had to recommend taking barns down only in four or five cases. In total, this barn is in very bad condition. It is very obvious that this barn must be removed to make way for a more modern and efficient structure. As I was preparing to have the dedication in the new renovated church building, I read that letter and I thought, boy, it's a good thing we didn't listen to this expert. We had an architect who had great vision, an architect who believed that the barn could be saved, It had deteriorated to the point of worthlessness. It had deteriorated to the point of dangerousness. But it was restored not only to its original condition, but to a far greater and more glorious condition. Better than new. That structure, hopefully in years to come, even when I see pictures of it, it will remind me of what Paul said to Titus in chapter 2. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We are God's nation, God's people who have been bought back and renovated, restored to His glory. But the idea of being bought, owned, and renovated by God doesn't go far enough because we can own and highly value very impersonal things. He not only bought us back as something valued to Him and made us valuable to Him, but He has entered into relationship with us. That's what the covenant's all about. The covenant is not only about possession. The covenant is about relationship. And that's where you get the last great glorious title that Peter gives to the church, which is that we are Christ betrothed. We are God's people. We are God's precious possession. But we are Christ's betrothed. Betrothal is a commitment to marriage. You know, like Joseph and Mary. A, a, a binding commitment to marriage. That's what a betrothal is. And you may look at what Peter writes here and you say, I don't see marriage in these verses. Where do you see marriage? Well, that's one of those beautiful treasures that comes out of God's word when you dig a little deeper because when you look at verse 10 it's plain enough what it means when you read it at face value but what's interesting is it's again Peter is taking a direct quote from the Old Testament and he's using language that was used to describe the nation of Israel and he's applying it to the church verse 10 is taken from the prophecy of Hosea you remember Hosea Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel just before it came under final judgment. And Hosea was told by God to marry a woman whom he was told in advance would be an adulteress. A woman who would not be faithful to him. Can you imagine? A lot of prophets in the Old Testament were called to do some strange and bizarre things. But no prophet was called to do anything more difficult than what Hosea was called to do to give himself to a woman who he knew beforehand would be unfaithful to him who would break his heart. Hosea had 3 children by this woman Gomer. 3 children. The first was a son named Jezreel. God told him to call his children all the names that they he called them. His oldest son was called Jezreel, which means scattered. God's people were about to be scattered in God's judgment. Then Hosea and Gomer had a daughter. And that daughter was to be given the name No Mercy. For God had chosen to withdraw His mercy from His people. And then they had a son. And that son was to be given the name in Hebrew, Not My People. My kids think being a pastor's kid is tough. Being a prophet's kid is a a hard thing to walk around with names like Scattered and No Mercy and Not My People. Eventually, as God had foretold, Gomer left Hosea to be with other men. Can you imagine the passion in the heart of Hosea as he preached about the rebellion and spiritual adultery of Israel as he realized that the pain in his own heart, the adultery that he was experiencing, God was experiencing to a far greater extent as his people turned their back on him and went after other gods and served idols. Do you remember how the story goes? Chapter 3, Hosea is told to go after Gomer. I love that. Go after her. Buy her back. It even gives the price that he paid. Buy her back. Bring her back into your home and renew your covenant with her. What's the meaning of this? The heart of God is expressed in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not come in wrath or more to the point of what Peter quotes here in 1 Peter 2, this is what God said to His people in Hosea 2, verses 20-23. through I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not My people, you are My people, and He shall say, you are My God. You see, that's what Peter's quoting here. That's who the church is. We were the adulteresses. But God, in His grace and mercy, has gone after us. Even while we were still dead in sin, still living in hostility and rebellion against Him, He went after us and He bought us back and He bought us back at the price of the blood of His own Son. And He renewed the covenant that He had given to Abraham. He said, I will be your God And you will be my people. You see, we are born worshipers. We are born people who want to belong to someone greater. I watch teenagers do it all the time. They want to belong to somebody. And so they wear a boy's ring or they wear a a, a girl's necklace or they wear a letterman's jacket, whatever it is they wear these days, to say, this person belongs to me. I guess they get tattoos these days. I don't know what they do. But they want something to say, I belong to somebody else. Because there's that drive in us to belong. But because we are so darkened and captive to sin, we give ourselves over to idols, to false gods, to people, to things. What we really want is to belong to God. And God says, come to me through Christ. Come to my, be part of my church. I will be your God. You will be my people. We are God's people. We are His nation. We've been bought back and we've been betrothed to our God through Jesus Christ. That's how we are to see ourselves. That's how we are to see ourselves. We are the glorious church of Jesus Christ. If we see ourselves that way, it will transform how you think. And if it transforms how you think, it will transform how you live. That's what Peter alludes to. Let me just conclude with this. So what's the implication? What are we to do then? If this is who we are, how are we to live? Verse 9, He did all this that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why God did all this, to make you into worshipers of His glory. Peter is again thinking of an Old Testament passage that was applied to Israel. Everything in here comes directly out of the Old Testament. This one's from Isaiah 43. Listen to verses 20 and 21. Where God, speaking to Israel, says, My chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they may declare my praise. That's the purpose of redemption. Is that you might see the glory of God and worship Him. That you might declare His praise to the world. You see, that's what real witness is. Witness is testifying to the love we have for God. The most powerful witness. I I never want to guilt people into sharing the gospel about Jesus Christ, inviting people to church, whatever, because the real heart of witness is worship. And there is no more powerful witness that you can possibly give than to share with somebody else about someone or something that you deeply love. Ever hear somebody talk about Penn State football? that really loves Penn State football, they're evangelists for Penn State football. Somebody who loves great music, some band that they absolutely love, they become evangelists for that band. They can't help but share what they love so deeply. If you love your wife, you talk about her all the time, how much you love her, how great she is. That's powerful testimony. He is our God. We are His people. And that's what must drive our testimony to the world. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are the glorious church of Christ. We are the priests. We are the nation. We are His precious possession. We are His betrothed wife, the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for believing what the world tells us about ourselves and not believing Your Word. Renew our vision of the glory of the Church of Jesus Christ. And we give you all the praise for what you have done to buy us back and to restore us into the image of Christ. Accept now our worship as we come to you around the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.